This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. And this one is a landmark. You guys, we have hit episode 20. I love a landmark episode. I'm all excited because that means we've been going for almost six months. And actually, if I do the maths, I think we have been going for longer than six months. Um, But only because I started out doing just a couple of episodes a month. So yes, anyway, very exciting. Today's episode is with Damon Swade, and we are talking all about characterization, how choosing and identifying a verb for your character helps you go deep with characterization. We also touch on personal branding, story arcs, and an awful lot more. This is one of those episodes, a bit like the Becca Syme episode, where my brain just melted from just, yeah, like all of the amazing tips and tricks that came out from the conversation. But first to last week's question, and thank you so much to Amy who posted it in my Facebook group because I forgot to post the podcast I am not very good unless I'm scheduling things. So thank you, Amy, for posting it. Um, We had, oh my goodness me, we had so many responses. The question was, what was your favourite children's book or children's book series? And this must have had the most responses from any of the questions. Uh, Not sure why, perhaps we all just love a bit of nostalgia. So Erin McKnight said, my favourite book as a kid was Anne of Green Gables. Amy Mertz said, when I was really little, it was probably the frog and the toad at home stories. Patricia Ann Greening said, Winnie the Pooh, all four books, uh, The Wind in the Willows, The Wizard of Oz. Andre Kimbop agreed with Patricia saying Winnie the Pooh Um, and then when they got older they read nearly all of the point horror books. I haven't actually heard of those but I'm definitely going to google it now. Last one then, Ali Potts said Where the Wild Things Are which I also loved as a kid. Uh, She continues to say she was convinced for years it was the first book she ever read by herself but her mum eventually told her that she'd simply demanded that her mum read it to her so often that she'd actually memorised it and that's my slack which I need to turn off. (laughs) Okay so this week's question is looking at the personal side of branding uh, from the chat I have with Damon today. So I'm interested, and you will have to listen to the whole of this podcast before you can answer it, but I'm interested in your personal verb. So what is your verb? I would love to know what you guys are and what you think of the verb that I chose for myself and whether or not you think it's accurate. So the book recommendation this week is, of course, Verbalise. I couldn't have this podcast uh, without recommending Verbalise. I have read it. I loved it. Um, Lots and lots of amazing information and just the way that it changed my mindset and opened my eyes to thinking about characters in a different way. Um, And it has changed how I, uh, you know, outline and plot and think about uh, my characters. So yeah, I'm highly recommending that book this week. 
So in personal project news, the conference is over for the Alliance for Independent Authors and I am going to be getting back to my own work this week. Um, I spent a little bit of last week planning the next quarter. I cannot believe that we are at the end of the first quarter in 2020, but I am going to be structuring things slightly differently in quarter two. I have no conference for a start. Um, and I've got lots of projects that either need finishing or updating or organising. So, I mean, they're kind of lots of annoying little things that I've let slide and I can't afford to do that anymore. So I will probably talk about that more in a bonus episode when I round off the experiment that I started on New Year's Day, um, confessing my quarterly goals. So... I still don't know whether or not I will continue to confess them every uh, every quarter, um, but this one will be a bonus episode, so it will be um, an additional one, because that's what bonus means, Sasha. Um, yeah, so what I mean is it won't be on a Wednesday, I will just add it in to um, the extra week. God, shut up, move on. Right, so um, this week it is Sunday the 15th as I record this, the 15th of March, and so my main job is to actually finish the prose edits and get them sent to the editor. Once that's done, I will be hammer and tongs at the workbook and um, getting that off to the editor and then starting the launch process, which is super exciting. Um, the prose, Anatomy of Prose is up on pre-order, but it's only on Amazon at the moment and only digitally. I will be putting pre-orders up on all of the other sites. This will be a wide book, um, but I would like to have the book slightly more complete before I put it up. Um, for those that know, I had an error with one of my other um, pre-orders, so I'm just acutely aware that I want to make sure I have the finished document before I put the pre-order up, which I will have in plenty of time. So I am aiming for about mid-April for the paperback and um, the other stores to have their pre-order. Um, I've already mentioned one bonus episode that will be coming in the next couple of weeks, which is the quarterly uh, round off of my um, um, uh, projects and the other one will be a uh, reflection on or takeaways from the conference I went to last week which was the Mark Dawson self-publishing show live event so I will give you my lessons learned slash takeaways from that. Okay the listener rebel of the week this week is Edwin Downward. Uh, Edwin said, I rebelled against the cool crowd back in school by refusing to wear jeans until after, well after I'd escaped, uh, graduated. So I responded curious what he was wearing, if not jeans. I mean, it could have been anything, people. There were no details. I needed to know more. Thankfully, this story doesn't have a cliffhanger. I asked Edwin if he wore shorts and he said my oldest brother would go barefoot and shorts all year round where, where permitted. Mostly I wore slacks like my dad did when he went to the office. So rebelling by not rebelling? Okay, well, 
I think the fact that you avoided doing what the cool kids were doing is a total rebellion. Um, especially because I'm probably I'm pretty sure that that probably led to um, some of the nasty little fuckers saying horrible things. Because we all know if you're not in the cool crowd, then the you know um, air quote cool people will have something to say about it. Um, but mostly they're the ones that are not cool after school. So who's laughing now, fuckers? <laughs> Um, anyway, love this rebellion. I love the small rebellions. I love the big rebellions. I love any rebellion, any rebellion in between on the large scale, on the, on the small scale. So yes, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or somewhere in between. You can email your story to rebelauthorpodcast uh, at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. No new patrons today, but thank you as always to my current patrons who help to ensure that this podcast continues. If you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus essays, posts and content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. One quick final note this session was recorded back at the end of October, November time. So just be aware that some of the comments may not be completely accurate because obviously some time has passed. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am with Damon Swade. Damon grew up out and proud deep in the anus of right-wing America and escaped as soon as it was legal. Beyond romance fiction, Damon has been writing for print, stage, and screen for almost three decades. He's won some awards, but counts his blessings more often. His amazing friends, his demented family, his beautiful husband, his loyal fans, and his silly, stern, seductive muse who keeps whispering in his ear year after year. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a fan. I was so excited uh, when you reached out because I... I read your books. I know your sort of articles. I'm always sort of following what you're doing in the intertubes. So it's uh, it was which, really which a pleasure I, to be here. I just can't believe because when you messaged me back and and said that, I was like, but but you're Damon, and, and <laughs> <laughs> I was literally like, but I've read all of your books, and you know, oh, bless uh, so you. yeah, I have read both. Uh, well, actually, I haven't read Activate because it's more of a res reference. Yeah, you've dipped into it. It would be yeah. weird to read it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and it also it's a weapon. It's not a book. It's a fucking weapon. It's two point two pounds. That thing is a brick. Yeah, and actually, it, I, that is my husband's doing. So, the, <laughs> I mean, this is probably part of the podcast. But as a sidebar, I originally was like ebook only. It's got one hundred ninety thousand links in it. Blah blah blah. And my husband was like, everybody wants reference books in yeah. print. And I was like, it's a thesaurus. Nobody wants. He was like, I promise they want yeah. it in print. And it's funny. It is, I think it's actually more popular in print than an ebook. People oh, want yeah. to dog ear it and flip through it. And But yes, it's 2.2 pounds. It's quite hefty. That does not surprise me in the slightest because I actually went to buy it when it was still just an ebook. And I was furious with you. I was like, <laughs> where's the fucking paperback? I want the paperback. And... Um, <laughs> 
I was like, God damn it. And then, and then I, I think I heard somewhere that you were bringing the pain back and I was like, it's fine. I forgive you. It's fine. It's fine. It's coming. <laughs> well, you know, the um, funny thing is it actually, that book started as a, an appendix. It was originally 10, I was going to do a 10,000 word small thesaurus of small. active transitive verbs <laughs> in the back of Verbalize. And so I started writing it. And then the 10,000 words became 11 and then it became 17 and then it was 25. And then I was like, oh, I think this is a separate book. And then it was 90 and then it was 120. It's now 280,000 or 270,000 words long. It, 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 and it grew. It just kind of grew on its own. And the more I dug into what, what were available in English as transitive verbs, when I started actually, I did these giant, I mean, we can talk about all this later, but yeah. I did these big word clouds talking about different genres and different types of character. And then once I dug in, I couldn't stop. It was like, you know, you don't stop halfway through hell, you just go through. <laughs> so, what yeah. did Churchill say when you're going through hell, keep going? Like, yeah. I just kept going. <laughs> okay, well, we will dig into that uh, more in a moment. But first of all, tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your career, and your journey um, of how you got to where you are today. Well, I started out, I was a child, uh, I was originally a child singer. Um, when I was very, very young, I had a freak voice. I had a four and a half octave range as a little boy, so I was like a sopralto. And then by the time I got to puberty, I was like, uh, at like an alta baritone, like I had a very, <laughs> I had a very wide range, and so I did a lot of musicals. And I'm very, very extroverted, and I was a dancer, and I had been a gymnast, and so I was doing all this musical theater as a kid. And then, of course, that led to acting in classics because if you can speak quickly, articulately, and you have received pronunciation, you can essentially do anything on stage. And so mm. I did a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of restoration. That brought me to London uh, right after college. My my degree is actually in religion philosophy, but I gone to New York originally to be in theater. I wanted to work in the arts. And I came to London. I was at, uh, I went to the London Academy. I had a blast. I had an agent and a manager. I worked in London, British theater. Actually, I toured um, a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of restoration because I'm very pale and I have a big ass. And so I, well, I look good in tights, you see. So it's, it's very, I can always scream, cry and get naked. And like my last, my pro last professional acting gig on stage was Howard Barker's The Possibility, where I literally screamed, cried, got molested naked on stage with Lear Camera Smith. And while I was doing that, a producer came up to me and said, hey, I hear you're a writer. And I said, well, yeah, I write like, you know, skits for charity benefits when I get asked, because I'd done a lot of comedy. And he said, well, I have a play, I have a theater and the playwright that I was going to be doing in the fall just dropped out and I've got this gap. And I said, and, and he said, well, do you want to write a play? Which by the way, never happens. Like no one would ever do this. And he said, well, I just think you're really talented and I'd love to see what you do. Why don't you write and direct something? And since we had no time, we had three months. I wrote, I, I, I art directed a photo shoot, wrote a play to fit the advertising and then the play sold out. And it, I didn't know it at the time, but this was at a moment in British theater when, um, all, sort of the pub theaters in London had exploded, like the King's Head and the Almeida sort of had grown up at this point. Sam Mendes had just started Donmar. And so there was a lot of interest in kind of edgy, funky, small theater in sort of outskirts of London. And partially sort of Edinburgh had expanded so much nationally and internationally. And so I sort of fell into the deep theater scene in London and then this show did very well. And then I did a bunch of other shows and then I started, I decided I wanted to write full time. And so I, as I, I was saying before we started recording that I tried to immigrate, I wanted to move to the UK and because of tax reasons, I couldn't. So I moved back to New York and I wound up working with a bunch of really fancy people 
um, in theater as an assistant, as an assistant director, as a properties designer at the public. I did all sorts of weird jobs, but my rule, I'd never worked in retail. I'd never worked as a waiter and I'd never worked in an office. And my rule was I will do any job in the arts as long as I can have time to write. And so I started writing full time from that point forward. And I was 21 at this point. And so I came back and it's sort of like not at all what you're supposed to do as a, an artist, I guess, but I guess nothing is ever what you're supposed to do. So I came back, I started writing full time. I was working with all these companies. I did a lot of off-Broadway, I did a bunch on Broadway. I did a bunch of doctoring. And then a play of mine won a bunch of awards and it got bought by Tribeca, it got by uh, Bob De Niro's company for film. And then I started doing a lot of film work and I was working with Box Animated Features and I did, I started doing a lot of doctoring. And what I got known for was you could hand me any script and I could make it sexier in about two weeks. And so, I, well, I mean, they, when they hire you, like as a hired gun, you get a rep for certain things. I was really good at sort of in like witty banter. I was really good at physical comedy. I was really good at sort of sexy tension. And so I did a lot of doctoring and I did that for a long time. And there got to be this moment in about 2009, 2010, where I was like, I hate everything I'm doing. The plays that I'm writing are winning a lot of awards, but they're never going to get produced because that's not really actually how plays work anymore. They haven't worked that way since the 1940s. I'm doing a lot of film and television, which is not really what I want to be doing. I, it's great money. Um, and a friend of mine and I were on the phone. She was working on an erotic romance. This was in 2010. And she dared me. We were, we were working on a story of hers. Uh, she was having trouble. And so my husband was out of town working on a murder case. And so I, he's a forensic investigator. So <laughs> I was going to say, good clarification there. <laughs> I should yeah, like fill in. So he's, he's a forensic investigator. He was working on a case. And so she said to me, she was like, if you don't write a romance, you're the laziest asshole I've ever met. And I said, oh okay, I've never written a book. And she said, you read all the time. You love the genre. Why don't you try it? And she said, the worst thing you can say, she said, I dare you. And so I, I wrote, <laughs> and I, I li she literally dared me. And I wrote my first book in six weeks. I sold it in two days and it was number one for six months. And it changed my life. Hothead was literally a watershed moment for me. And I didn't know it at the time, but it actually wound up being something of a watershed for LGBTQ romance. Because when I came in up to that moment, what they called quote MM romance was very niche. And I said, fuck that. I don't want to be niche. I do not want to live in a ghetto. I did not come out when I was 14 to come out all over again. Like I write gay romance, I'm proud. And so I was like, I want this to do New York Times numbers. And so I promoted like a crazy person, but I promoted the way you do in film and television. I treated it like a package. And so I, I I had very, very big success with that book and then with the other books. And then that led me into romance. I called my, my legit agent and I, I was like, Ron, I'm not going to be working in film anymore. And he was like, fuck you. And I <laughs> said, here are my quarterlies. And he was like, don't fuck you. I love these. And so yeah. I was that like, you know, it, it, it was such a change for me to be in a community where everyone wanted to help you. Like in film, everybody wants to like murder you and rape your corpse and then eat whatever's left when they're done. And in romance, everybody kept saying, how can I help? What can I do? Can I introduce you to someone? Do you need any help? Can I beta read? And at first I was suspicious. I was like, why are all these people so nice? This is really weird. And what I realized is no, the entire genre is predicated on the idea that relationships are more powerful than solitude. And so everyone wants to help you because they can't write fast enough to satisfy their fans. And so they need other talented writers. And so the journey has been really crazy because again, I started out as a loud kid with rhythm and here I am, right? Like 30, whatever plus years later, I'm a professional romance writer. And 
it's as though you raised me in a vat to do this job because I was raised by a feminist lesbian in Houston, Texas, 10 blocks from where RWA was founded. I'm now president elect of RWA. I'm a, so randomly here I am like living out my little destiny, but it's, it's been an amazing journey. I, I, I would not trade places with anybody. I feel so blessed to get to do this job, to get paid, to make up nice stories for people. I love it. I, 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 I am utterly speechless because (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't happen very often. Let me tell you, (laughs) I love everything about your journey and your story. And there were lots of echoes. Um, So when I was a kid, I also acted. Not I stopped uh, when I was sixteen, so I didn't. I was the lead in a TV show, but I was bullied sadly, and then promptly stopped. Um, but I also had an agent and I did a lot of voiceover work and, um, yeah, so lots of echoes of, right. um, you, know, um, you know, throwback memories, but yeah. Oh my God. I love your story. I love your well, journey. You. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Um, okay. So I have read and loved Verbalize and I now have Activate. So <clears throat> whilst I know what I'm talking about, uh, listeners might not. So could you tell everyone a little bit about the concept behind Verbalize and how it can impact character creation and your writing in general? Sure, sure, sure. So this is, there's a little, actually, I've sort of teed it up a little because the way this started, when I came into fiction, I came with this weird set of tools from showbiz. And I had been working in showbiz for so many decades that the idea that a character was a hair color and a job and a skin color was anathema because I can write, as I always say, like I could write an erotic thriller for Idris Elba and it winds up a web cartoon starring Polly Shore as a talking poodle. You have no idea what you're going to get when you turn in your script. So all you can do is give actors something to act. They have to have something to do on stage. And so when I would talk to people about their books and I would say, well, what's it about? And they would say, well, she's blonde and she has hazel eyes. And I would say, okay, well, that's nice and all, but what does, what happens? Like, what is the story? And I found it really weird that every character guide I read kind of talked as if it was doing a personal ad. Like it was, it was as if you picked these things from an identikit, as if you were in a police station identifying a perpetrator, where you're like, oh, you know, she's a humpback lesbian with an eye patch and a, she's a kleptomaniac who's also a Zionist. Like it, it, it doesn't, that's not a character, right? It's just it's a, a big checklist. Yeah, it's a checklist. And I call them impersonal ads because the thing is there are many redheads, there are many, there are many women, there are many people with eye patches, there are many people that are Muslim. Like how does that d- characterize somebody? It's a, it's a bunch of, it's sort of a pig pile of traits. Well, when I first started writing in romance, what I did was what I did for a script, which was I gave my characters actions. And by that, I mean, I literally, for every character I write, I give them a single transitive verb an action that defines everything they are because and again the the example i use with this is severus snape because if i tell you that severus snape has black hair and he wears a cloak with bat-like wings and he's a teacher and he's he's a hero hero and he's a martyr and he's a lover and he's a coward all these things are true but how do you write that like you can't actually do that on on page and i guarantee alan rickman did not look at a script and say "Ooh, black hair i'll take it No, he looked at the actions. That's why directors call action on set, because you want them to do something. What he does is he looks at what the character does. And Aristotle in the Poetics 
he says, the character, he, the word he uses for character is ethos. And ethos does not mean what we mean when we say character. Ethos doesn't mean like a role or a function. Ethos literally means habitual action. It is that which one does habitually. And so when you say like the character of Severus Snape, you're not actually saying tall, dark hair, greasy, cowardly, heroic, whatever. That's horseshit. That's all worthless. What you're actually saying is he does something that is Snape-like, right? And so for me, I believe the action of Severus Snape is Vex. What Severus Snape does is he vexes people. He vexes Harry, he vexes Dumbledore, he vexes Voldemort, he vexes Slytherin, he vexes Gryffindor, he vexes Lily, he vexes James. He vexes and vexes and vexes. And for people who disagree and they're like, oh no, he does all these other things. No, what he does is he vexes and in the course of vexing, he has tactics that change as reactions to the things around him, right? Here's the ultimate proof. The word Snape literally means vex. Literally, the synonym of Snape is vex. And his name means vex you severely. And so, like, I'm not saying that J.K. Rowling agrees with me, but I'm telling you that the idea of Snape is tied up in vexation in the same way that Valmont is tied up in ruin. I believe that the Vicomte de Valmont in Liaison Dangereuse is ruin. I believe Seely Harris in The Color Purple is question. And so... I start from this idea that when you verbalize a character, when you put a character on the page, what you're actually doing is not piling up a bunch of adjectives. That's kind of worthless. What you do is you give them something to do because once they are in action, there's automatically conflict, there's automatically emotion, there's automatically drama. And then based on that one action in different scenes, I have what I call tactics. And those are synonyms of the primary action. So for example, Lizzie Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, her act, now, I should say, I should caveat here, caveat. So I say Severus Snape is vexed, but let's say Sasha that you wanted to write Severus Snape and you were like, no, I think that Severus Snape is seduce. Every time I see Severus Snape, I want to make wet love to him. Maybe that is the way you imagine Severus Snape. Great, you're a writer, word choice is how we work. All of us can have our own actions. That's why we're writers. It's part of our voice. And so for me, if I'm writing the character, I think Vex is how I see and how I would verbalize him. You might have a So there's no like sort of ultimate truth about characters, although things get pretty explicit. So for example, in Lizzie, in Lizzie Bennett's case, if you read Pride and Prejudice, the word, the action that is given to Lizzie over and over again is provoke. On so many, throughout that novel, Lizzie is always provoking everyone. Now, in the course of provoking, she does other things. She mocks, she goads, she spurs, she ridicules, she scorns. She does all these other things. They are synonyms of her core action, which is to provoke. And so in each scene, she has a different tactic, but her arc is one of provocation. And so when I want to characterize someone, I have their action, and then these sub-actions, these tactics, are reactions to other characters. And by doing that, I then kind of get facets out of the character and dimension, and I always know what they're doing in a scene. And because the verbs themselves are words that you choose, your voice is the only thing that is required to motivate them because it's all driven by their energy and what they make happen on the page and how other characters react because of course every character has an action and every action produces a reaction. Does that make sense? It does. So let's look at, so in terms of a character arc then, um, they are obviously starting with their verb and the well, that, now, full now, embodiment of that. So what happens at the end? So here's the thing. One of the, I ne you'll notice that when I talk about it, I always say action and tactic. Both of those are verbs. So they start with their core verb, which is their action, but then their secondary verbs, which are their tactics. So if you start with this core action, 
that action never changes. If you write a book with 30 titles, uh, you write a series with 30 books in the series, that action will remain for that character all the way through the series. Because the minute you change the action of a character, they stop acting like themselves. That's why when you're reading a series and you think like, oh, that character is not the same character it was, that's because the action has changed, right? Mm -hmm. And so over the course of say one book, if you were writing a book and you wanted to have, you wanted to set up a character, you start with a transitive verb, an action that this character will embody for the entire book. Their action is not gonna change. They may change, but the things that will change are not their core action but their secondary tactics. Does that make sense? And so over the course of the story, the way they react to other people will alter. But at the end of Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie Bennet is still provoking. <laughs> Severus Snape is so to vex, like vex is what he is, so much so that after he is dead, his tears vex people. <laughs> vexation in human form. And so it's not that like, oh, he's dead, now he'll stop vexing people. No, his corpse vexes people. Like everything he is is vexatious. And so that, that friction that he produces by vexing people persists. And if he came back in a different book, he would still be vexing. He is vexing on every page of those seven novels. And everything around him is defined by his vexatious nature, right? And so as you're building, the example I always use is Streetcar Named Desire. Do you know that play, Streetcar? Um, a little bit. Stella right. isn't isn't the main character, I think. No, Stella. Stella no. no, you're thinking of Blanche as the main uh, character. Uh, yeah, so yeah. It, the main character is Blanche Dubois. I believe her action is to conceal, right? She always veils and drapes and costumes and makes up. She's always covering and, and, and hiding things, right? But Stanley, who's her direct opposite, penetrates. He breaks and bellows and thrusts and shatters. He's always ripping and tearing and pushing everything. Penetrate, 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 right? And she's conceal, conceal. What's the most horrible penetrate in the world? Rape. And at the end of the story, in the last scene we see Stanley attacking her, he rapes her. That is his tactic in that scene. The last time that we see Blanche Dubois, she's still concealed, but her tactic is to imprison. And she imprisons herself in a lunatic asylum, depending on the kindness of strangers. And so the unpacking of conceal and penetrate reach their pinnacle, their climax in rape in prison. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so by the same token, the word, like the word climax in Greek literally means ladder. And so you can think of the action as the ladder they're climbing and each of the tactics as a rung leading to the top of that ladder. Do you know what I mean? It gets them where they're going. And so those become the steps that they take scene by scene as they march inexorably towards the ending, whatever the genre, right? Because if it's a romance, the genre is going to end with hope. If it's hard, it's going to end with despair. If it's a Western, it's going to end with civilization. And those things are driven by all those tactics pushing forward. What I really like about this concept is that it not only gives you characterization, but it also gives you plot. It, because, absolutely. Yeah, because your characters, you know, if they are embodying their verb, then it also, in a way, gives you their outcome at, uh -huh. because they have to still be that thing. At That's the right. End. That's right. So, yeah, I love, I love this so much. It's funny, this started, the way this whole journey started, I secretly believed everyone wrote this way. When I first came into fiction, 
I thought everyone was doing this and just not talking about it. So I thought it was like a secret club and we all knew, but we were wink, wink, nudge, nudge, ignoring it. <laughs> and so I was on, uh, Kristen Higgins and Farrah Rashawn and I were teaching a three-way character class and each of us took 20 minutes. And so Farrah went, uh, Kristen went, then Farrah went, and then I went. And at the end, I'm doing my little bit and I'm like 20 minutes and I'm like, body, body, blah, verbalize, blah, 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 action tactics, blah, 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 trajectory. And Kristen at the end was like, what the fuck was that? And I said, <laughs> I was like, everybody works this way. What are you talking about? And this room, it's like, we're packed. Standing room only. It's like 400 people in a room that can hold 200. And people are agog. And I was like, you all do this. What are you talking about? And they were like, we've never heard this before. And I was like, it's actions. You're, you, you all write this way. And they were, like, they were like, maybe we do, but we've never thought of it that way. The truth yeah. is, I think all writers work this way. They just don't do it consciously. And so it's not that I think like, oh, this is the one true way. It's that I think it is the way. And we all reach it in different directions. And so like everyone uses words. That's what words are. In fact, Fitzgerald even says like the art of writing is always in the verbs. The verbs, that's why we say the word verbalize. When you verbalize something, it's because verbs are the core of language. And so why wouldn't you go to that? I always think of myself like when I'm teaching as like grammar punk. Like a lot of people are like, I hate grammar. Grammar sucks. And I'm like, well, when you're 12, grammar sucks because you want to like cry and masturbate. But when you're <laughs> Like grammar is actually how you make money and grammar is actually how you make a better book and grammar is how you build a fan base and grammar is how you sell things. Here's the cool thing. Once you verbalize your characters, once you know what their actions and tactics are, that's the way you sell the story too. That's how you tell the story. That's how you sell the story because newsflash, what is marketing language? Active, transitive verbs. If you go to a marketing, like a copywriting class, they will tell you the language to focus on is not adjective. It's verbs. The verbs are where the cell is in your book. And when you're pitching to an agent, they don't want to know what color their hair is. They want to know what happens. They want to know what they do. And so by focusing on actions, it, as you say, like it's character and plot. I secretly don't think there's any difference between character and mm. plot. I think they're lenses mm. that allow people to consider it. And so when people say like, I'm a character writer, I'm a plot writer. I'm like, okay, like you wear your underpants on the outside or you wear your, like your glasses on your feet. Who cares? As long as you get words on the page and someone pays you to do it, you're a writer. And so like whatever the process is, it gets you there. But spoiler alert, you're going to get to verbs eventually because unless there is a verb, nothing happens on the page. <laughs> and so why not start? Why not plug into the source, right? Like why not go right to the power? I completely agree. Um, I don't think there's a difference either because story arc is character arc. That's it. Uh, exactly. You know, so exactly. it is just a nonsense. Like, uh, you know, the plotting, pantsing argument, but who cares? Oh. As long as you get to the end, what does it no, matter? I always tell my students the difference between plotting and pantsing is when you do it. Because a plotter is someone who sits down and they're like, here's what I'm going to do. And the pantser is someone's like, you are, you're not the boss of me. But then they write a big, ugly outline they call their rough draft, and then they have to spend a million years revising it. It's still going to have an outline because if you're writing a romance, again, spoiler alert, it ends happily. Yes. That's a plot. <laughs> but like, it's not that you don't plot, it's when you plot. And I feel like plotters are people who do it early, and pantsers are people who do it late. And the truth is, we all pants too because you can't just follow a list. 
stories aren't cookie cutter. They're not sort of widgets, but by the same token, you cannot drive in a hot wired car with no headlights and no gas and not go off cliffs occasionally. So you, yeah. you have to have both. I mean, you have to have plotting and pantsing. Yeah. And I've, I, I don't know um, what your process is, but I found that um, m- m- my stories are very sentient and they all have different personalities and none of them necessarily follow the same method. And I swear this is probably because of the verbs of the characters, but um, <laughs> you know, some are very stroppy and you know will only give pieces to me, and so they get written all over the fucking place, and then I have to piece them together at the end. And then others are incredibly, you know, uh, straight laced and come out logically, coherently, chronologically, um, you know, and they can even be plotted. But you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. So I think um, plotting and pantsing, and I, I was talking uh, uh, about this with Holly, who's been on the podcast as well. She she also thinks that um, it's a null conversation because different stories require different levels of plotting, pantsing, or, you know, free writing or whatever. Um, Okay, excuse me. So in your book, you also talk about, uh, you go down another level in terms of these verbs, and you talk about um, how they uh, naturally create movement and mm. there are different types of movements directions attached, yeah, yeah 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 sure attached to uh these verbs so can you explain what you mean by that and how it impacts both sentences and character creation okay so the way this the way to think of it is i it's funny i was down in florida and i was talking to Cairo carson who writes category romance and she had read the book and taken some classes with me and she said you know i feel like i've been playing with dolls and now I'm looking through the matrix. She said, I'm not picking up cliches and stereotypes from other people and writing those. A verb has no race, a verb has no gender, a verb has no orientation, a verb has no politics. It is, in a way, it's like catching lightning in a bottle, right? And so effectively what you're doing when you're verbalizing a story is you're tracing where the energy goes, right? Well, the thing is energy moves. There's no such thing. I mean, even static energy is static because it hasn't been released into the environment, right? Even if it's potential, the energy is waiting to be made kinetic. And so if it's going to move, how is it going to move? And when I was trying to, I was actually trying to figure out how to, how to verbalize, how to vocalize the way I think about this. And I thought back again to Schmachting of, how you actually operate in space. And I was thinking, what is the simplest way to explain to people who might be afraid of grammar or might be afraid of parts of speech what a verb does? And so I broke it down in the most basic way. I used Empedocles, actually, because I'm a classics nerd. Empedocles, who's the sort of root of the Aristotelian doctrine of the four elements, et cetera, et cetera. So this is pre-Socratic Greek philosophy, which you never need to read about, but you can talk to me about anytime you want to at a bar. But so the idea is, that effectively there are four qualities. And from these four qualities, we get the four elements. That's a whole, that's another podcast we'll do later when we're drunk on whiskey. But what <laughs> oh, I'm gin, darling, gin. Oh, that's, I'm whiskey, you'll be gin. Great. I used to drink gin. I had a bad experience with gin when I was 14. No, no more. Uh, so, I also do tequila, though. If you, oh, I'm I will. Happy do, to do tequila. Yes, please. <laughs> sipping tequila. Okay, so next time I'm in London. So if you think about it this way, if you are a neutral character existing in space, and you do something, you have to ask yourself, well, how am I, not how am I the doll or the, the mannequin operating, but more more, how do I flow in the space? And so I thought, okay, if I am the actor, where does the energy go? And so I thought, here's the simplest way to divide it. Some energy moves away from us, 
some energy moves towards us. And that is push and pull. So there are times where we push forward into the world and there are times where we pull the world towards us. Those are two basic directions, right? Outward and inward. And this is again from Empedocles, the idea that some energy moves out into the universe and some energy moves in towards the operant, the actant, right? The person doing the thing. But then there are some things that happen outside of us that we don't actually have a connection to directly, but they happen in the world and we observe them. And those things can either be put together, they can be joined, or they can be separated, they can be split apart. And the reason I started trying to divide the words this way is that when you look at a verb, and I'll give you an example the verb seduce, because seduce is pretty clear. If I say someone seduced someone, you have a sense of what that is. Well, what is seduction actually energetically, right? And I don't mean in a woo-woo way. I mean, just literally, what are you doing when you seduce someone? Is it a push thing? Are you pushing towards them? Well, no. What you're trying to do is make them come closer to you. It's a pull verb. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. And so at core, <clears throat> seduce is a pull action. And not every action is clear. Like, for example, I believe that teaching or educating is actually a join verb. Not because, yes, you may push the thoughts from you out into the world, but what teaching actually does is it builds communities. It brings things together outside of yourself. And so teach, educate, mentor, edify, those are all join verbs. In the same way that when you mutilate something, you are splitting it, you're tearing it apart. So anything that involves murder, torture, death, slaughter, annihilate, obliterate, explode, all of these things are split verbs because what they do is they take something that is whole and they separate it. But then what about confusion? Confusion is also a split verb. Uh, confuse is also a split verb because what it does is it muddies the connection between people and the world around them. It divides communities in the same way that join verbs create communities. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And what I discovered was, and this actually happened, I started doing these word clouds as I was building act. So I wrote verbalize first and then everyone kept saying, do it thesaurus, do it thesaurus. So I wrote activate, this big brick you were talking about. And when I was doing it, I thought, well, I don't want to have just a big pig pile of alphabetical verbs because what are people going to do with that? First off, Every, because when I'm doing chemistry, the way you build chemistry between characters, you give them antonyms. It's the simplest thing in the world. And you have two lovers and you want them to love each other. You have one hide and you have one seek, or you have one pursue and you have one escape. And so those things create friction automatically. All you have to do is have those actions and then by extension, their synonymous tactics work antonymically. But so if I'm gonna do that, I had to start thinking about, well, what makes an antonym? What creates a synonym? And so this is why I call it like grammar punk. I had to like get down in the greasy underbelly of the language. And so I started looking, this sounds so ridiculous. I started looking at the etymology of words. I started looking at like the Indo-European roots of some of these verbs, like where they came from. But I also started looking at genre. So I started building world, word clouds because I wanted, as I said, not just alphabetical, I wanted to also divide the verbs uh, based on genre, because there are certain actions and tactics that are specific. I mean, they don't only occur in these genres, but they're very, very native to it. So for example, when I teach a romance group, if I'm teaching an RWA chapter and I talk about romance heroes, there is one action that comes up over and over again for heroes. It's uncanny, actually. The first time I did like an eight-day masterclass on characterization, I'm like 150 people, we're out in New Jersey, I'm teaching this big ballroom, and I said, okay, who's got an action for their hero? And everybody raises their hand, and I'm like, okay, how many of you have the action protect? And 65% of the room had their hand up. 65% of the romance authors in that room saw protect as the or action for heroes, right? In the same way for, for the sort of 
love interest of that hero. So whether you're doing hero, hero, heroine, heroine, hero, heroine, whatever the, the gender or orientation combo, protect is a core. Also defy is another core action of romance because a lot of romance is about bringing down power structures, right? And so what I started doing to figure out how this worked is I did word clouds for genres. I would go in and I would pick, say, the 50 most popular genre novels in one area. So like all thrillers or all gothic or all westerns. And I started looking at what the actions were, the verbs in their blurbs, in their opening chapters. And as I compiled all those, I started seeing trends. And so I built these big word clouds. I just literally took all the verbs that occurred and I built word clouds and you could see, oh, these 15 verbs come up all the time in Regency romance. When you're writing a Regency, these are the verbs that everyone's going to look at for actions and tactics. And so as I did that, I started digging. And then I, I was doing a class for RWA on tropes. And I started doing, I just actually, I've got to write this book. I haven't had time. But I did a, a whole thing with tropes where I looked at like secret baby books or friends to lovers books or two dogs, one bone or the discovery of the body. Like there are these tropes that occur in different places in fiction. And the actions and tactics shift over time. You can actually see the difference between, say, a 1990s whodunit, a 1960s whodunit, and a 1930s whodunit. The actions change. And so when you say, like, the verbs make it happen, 100%. Because what's actually happening is when the readers go shopping, they're not going and looking for redhead or, or a limp or, or golden retriever. What they're looking for is the actions. They see words like, avenge or charm or court or penetrate or arouse and they know what the story is going to be about because the action tells you what the emotion is <clears throat> verb shapes vibe and that's true for marketing copy that's true for the writing of the book it's true for everything because what do we want to know what does a kid say to you when they want to hear a story tell me what happens tell mm -hmm. me what happens that's a verb I does think that help? Is, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And um, <laughs> I'm having some personal revelations over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, you have a book on villains. It's one of my favorite books on villains, actually. And I was thinking about this because I had a woman who wrote gothic romance and she said, would you mind if I did a blog post? And I said, no, not at all. She did an entire blog post that is just about the actions, the standard actions of gothic heroes and how they change over time over time as the gothic evolves from like traditional gothic to neo-gothic in the 1960s to modern like quote domestic thrillers what do the actions of the heroes do and that really made me think about your villain book i was like what are we talking about when we talk about archetypes we're actually talking about what they do mm, right mm, absolutely um uh, so one of the things that um I think it's really interesting is is how you say that um, that you can watch the verbs change, and I think that's so true because um, I've been reading young young adult since I was a young adult, which was quite some time ago now. But um, I've seen a change in the heroes of that genre, and we are I think we're just about moving into something else now. But we've just come through this extremely large boom of very defiant and this is this is because you use the word defy and i was like oh my god this is what every young strong young adult uh, female yes. protagonist has yes. been for like the last half a decade, if not a decade. And I was like, oh shit, I feel so called out. Like he knows <laughs> what my characters are. And then I was like, oh, um, I think I also might write romance. 
like my my young adult has uh, it's 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 oh it's really just a romance and now it has I'm, feelings it should have feelings that's yeah. not bad that's good that's wonderful um yeah oh i love this so much i'm like my brain <laughs> cannot keep up because i'm just i'm thinking all of the thoughts and and i just yeah, I've just, this is an amazing, um, I need to, when I transcribe this, I'm going to be writing so many notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to throw another one out. I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw an anecdote out, but it's, uh, hopefully it will make some sense. So I was doing an interview for CBS Sunday Morning with uh, Faith Saley, and she said something crazy to me. She said, isn't Damon Swade a character? And I said, oh, absolutely. And she said, well, I mean, you're in public and you have people watching you and you do stuff on camera all the time and on radio. And she said, what's your action? And I, I, it literally staggered me. Like I was, I was, my, my, my brain blew up. I was like, oh my God, I know inst I knew instantly. I know what my action is. My action is to energize. Everything yeah. Damon Sway does is energize. And then I looked at my tactics and I was like, what do I do? I stimulate, I educate, I activate. I, all of those things are part, the tactics. They're the synonymous tactics of energize. And so now when I'm going to a conference, what I ask myself is, how will this energize people? Or if I'm buying a bookmark, I think, is that the energizing choice? If I'm picking out clothes, I'm like, which is the energized version? And so in a weird way, if you learn to verbalize yourself, if you come up with your own action, your own tactics, your own trajectory, you can accomplish anything. It's like branding with grammar because all you're doing is activating your own desire because aren't we characters yes don't we have goals motivations and conflicts yes and so once you start thinking about what am i doing not what am i being but what is the thing i must do to make something happen and so then again it becomes this sort of i don't know like a it's a it's a really wonderful mirror to look at yourself because you start thinking what is the thing i do every day that is in my nature. And I always tell people, like when I'm, when I'm teaching a marketing class, I always say the most annoying thing about you is your superpower. Because if you, could, well, think about it, because if you could control it, you would stop it. But oh God. So the thing that you, so for me, it's energy. Like my energy is so off the hook, it drives people insane. And so as I've learned to harness it, as I've gotten older, that is my fucking mutant superpower. And so energize is not just something I do, it's what I am. And so whenever I'm talking to authors, I'm like, what is the most annoying thing about you? Because whatever that is, whenever your kids are like, oh my God, or your, your partner is like, do you have to? The answer is yes, you do, because that is who you are. And then if we're going to write the narrative as a protagonist in your own narrative, you have to figure out how to harness that demon because that thing wants to be loose and you've got to find a way to use it on behalf of you so that like the magic is actually working magic for you not against you right uh, so this is a perfect segue because my next question was ab about personal branding um <clears throat> and the fact that uh, i think i've heard you mention this somewhere before that uh, in fact it might have been on joanna's podcast but that mm -hmm. each of us has a verb and um so i've i've been i've spent a long time thinking about what, what did you get verb. what was it well Ironically, I think it has to probably be rebel because um, it, that is the thing about myself that annoys me the most because I will, if I try to implement any rule or set a deadline or, or make, you know, I will immediately have to do the opposite of that thing. And, um, you know, I was told not to cut my hair off, so I 
two feet off. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, um, so I have a very distinct memory at work uh, when I used to be in a day job, and they told me I didn't dress corporately enough. So I went to work the next day in Converse trainers and leggings, and I never stopped going to work in right. Converse leggings and trainers. Well, so now, so, okay, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Because rebel is an intransitive verb, right? You can't rebel something you rebel against, right? It's a phrasal. It takes a preposition. So the question is, do you resist? Do you challenge? Do you defy? Do you agitate? Do you alarm? What's the thing that you do directly to them? Are you shocking them? Are you are defy? You, I think defy. So maybe it's yeah. defy. So yeah. maybe it's defy. And which so, would make sense because that's probably what I write as well. I think uh, absolutely. But, you know, so I write a young adult predominantly, although I am now moving into an um, adult fantasy but yeah i think it would be it, it's also it's the name of the podcast and That's i right. didn't didn't really ever know it was actually somebody else who identified that kind of branding and i think and this is the epiphany that you're giving me is that if you embody that thing it is the thing that you do the most That's so right. it's sort of just it was there so i think it probably is defy because it's your superpower that is yeah. your superpower yeah it's also my achilles heel and of course <laughs> But then think about it this way. Like I always say, if you know what your action is, then you go, you literally, and you have activate, you can look it up, go and look up that action and look at all the synonyms because those synonyms are going to tell you what your options are in different situations. Because if defy is your action, look at all the things you have. I mean, you have things like debunk, confront, challenge, attack, agitate, rattle, needle, sex. I mean, these are all things that you do, but then on top of it, who are the people that you're going to be most attracted to? Then look at your antonyms. And those are going to be people that ameliorate, pacify, mend, heal, right? Those are the things you'll be drawn to because that is the opposite. I mean, opposites attract, right? And so actions speak louder than words. You're going to find the things both that make you powerful and the things that you need that you can't do, right? Because I'm great at energizing. I am terrible at relaxing people. <laughs> I'm terrible <laughs> at calming people down. That does not work for me. This is so fascinating because, uh, so my Myers-Briggs is um, ENTJ. And if you look at the, depi- the the description of one of those, it is a challenging, blunt, abrupt, uh, you know, <laughs> co- confrontational person. And I'm like, oh, fuck, this really is me. I feel so called out. I, uh, you know. <laughs> but it's good is, to know those things, yeah, right? You should know those things. And I, for the record, I'm, I'm an ENFP. And I'm such an ENFP that what I meet in BTI people, they're like, oh, ENFP. Yes. The funniest thing is when I, my husband and I were talking about this, you know, one of the things they have people do in the government is they, they do testing, like personality testing. And he, and I said to him, I was like, oh, well, you're obviously an ISTJ. And he was like, how did you know that? And I said, because honey, it is the diametric opposite. Of what yeah. yeah. Diametrically <laughs> opposed. And so it's, the, it's, it's not that, and you know, I always say when it comes to sort of verbs, when it comes to anything, it's not that I'm saying like, you're born under this sign and this sign is your destiny. That's something else. But what it does is it gives you a clear sense of where you are now. That right now in my life, energize is the thing that I do, the thing that I am, right? And so over time, the way I react, right? My tactics are going to change. So it's not that I'm caged by energize. It's almost like a path. And this goes back to your question, right? About building the arc. It's not that, oh, the character is limited because we're picking this one, this one action and this action is going to cage them. No, it's not a cage. It's a trellis. It's like something that the roses grow on. And so you're giving the character something to fill in with blossoms and thorns, right? And that's true for us too. Because listen, being, if you are a defy, 
defy is incredibly powerful and revolutionary and rebellious and all those things but it's also necessary for change because if there is no no one to defy nothing ever alters nothing is ever moved forward and so it's it's learning how to kind of surf the energy that is endemic to you that's native to you <sighs> I, I just <laughs> so many i i'm I, I just oh my god i'm i'm just i'm always breathless here um, <laughs> Um, so, so the thing there that, um, I picked up is, um, so I, oh God, this is so personal, but so when I was in, um, the day job, psychologically, um, I was almost better off because I was, I was writing and being defiant against, you know, the man and the corporation and having left, I've not lost any of my creativity or my motivation, but I, it is harder for me to, um, focus almost because there is nothing to (laughs) rebel against right? other than myself. And this is, oh, fuck, I'm just, my head is exploding. Um, But then the question is, so like, if you know, I mean, the thing with defiance is, defiance is inherently aggressive and you need a recipient. I mean, this is something else I talk about in verbal, I mean, I talk about this in all the books, but is the idea that if you have a transitive verb, if you're using a transitive verb, what makes it transitive is it takes an object, grammatically, right? So subject, verb, object. So I drink the water, drink is transitive. Not I drink, like I am a drunk, that's a state of being. But I drink the water is an action, I'm doing something to something. And so if you defy, you can't just stand in the middle of a room and defy. This is actually what happens to a lot of crappy writing is people say, oh, my character broods. And I say, how do you brood something? I mean, unless you're a chicken and you're sitting on it, how do you actually brood as like a sexy dude in a YA novel? And the answer is you can, it's intransitive. And so it's, you're just being a mood and that's a boring character because they never interact with the world. And so for you, you're never going to be bored because you're always going to find, you'll always find something to defy. Just like I will always find something to energize. And the thing is, I'm not going to try to energize people who are already energized. What's the fun in that? I'm going to go find the quiet people, the still places, and then run electricity through them. That's what I always want to do. Blow shit up. Yeah. Yeah, and I always, I'm, I'm not trying to pick a fight or anything. I just want to do the you thing are. that you don't want me to do. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh my goodness, me. I um, I need a gin right now. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm, I'm just, I just, I am not being a great podcast host right now because no, you're being I'm a just wonderful podcast host. I feel very welcomed. <laughs> um. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm going to c- c- come back to my um questions because my brain is racing at 10,000 miles per hour. Um, what mistakes do you see authors making with verbs? Um, there's actually, I'll tell you, there, there are a couple of really key ones, but the biggest one, the one that I see more than anything else is that um, the big one is negatives. Um, when I'm teaching baby writers, especially writers that have just started or writers that have like read a bunch of books and they want to try, or they watch some television and they have an idea for whatever, the thing that they do is they say things, I'll say, what does your character do? And they'll say, they avoid, or they ignore, or they neglect, or they forget. The problem with a character that avoids for an entire book is that they can only react to other people. They don't do anything. In the same way that if you just ignore things for a whole book, like what are you actually, and it's not that you can't use those as actions, it's that you have to be incredibly skilled and deft to make it specific enough for someone to give a shit. 
because nobody wants to watch an entire book about a character who ignores everything around them, right? Or mm -hmm. avoids or escapes or whatever. And so like, if you look at a character like Emma, and one of her tactics in, in Jane Austen's novel is to ignore things or to disregard things, right? That is a negative tactic, but her actual action is very positive. Her action is to claim. And that's both the claim in the sense of lie, but it's also claim in the sense of pursue, and it's also claim in the sense of steal. And so she's actually quite active, but the impulse, like a baby writer would take that character and they would say, no, no, what she does is she ignores. And so I would always caution writers against looking at negative actions because we live in a culture that sees passivity as a virtue. It's why passive voice creeps into so much writing because what they'll say is mistakes were made instead of he made mistakes, right? And so because of that urge towards passivity, we are very apt, and television does this to us too, we are apt to allow characters to bob along passively, affected by everything else without doing anything. Mm -hmm. And so my baseline, what I always say is, do something to something. What is the thing you're doing? What is the thing or the person you're doing it to? And if you're in a genre like women's fiction or YA or romance where it's all about the people and the personalities, make sure the object of that sentence is another person. <laughs> because if they're only doing things to things, you wind up with what they used to call boy genres, right? Where you blow shit up and things fall down and the shirt comes off. Those kind of objectifying genres love characters that do things to things. But if you're in a personal genre that loves the inside, the inner landscape of emotion, always look for your object to be a person and don't avoid them. Get right up in their face, man. Figure out the thing you're gonna do that's gonna get, get you where you're going, whatever your objective is for the whole book. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do developmental editing and I often see a lot of very passive um, heroes and it's usually because they're not taking action upon things. They are um, either letting things happen to them or not. So I always think there's this difficulty where uh, writers want a character to be meek at the start and then, you know, grow into their leadership and their... Um, you know heroism but the problem is you even when you have a protagonist who is shy retiring whatever they still need to be driving the plot forward and taking action and yeah. i think um yeah so that makes an awful lot of sense to me it's um it's funny that's actually i think some of that comes from chris vogler's misreading of joseph campbell it's one of my big beefs with vogler's writer's journey and the idea of the quote quote heroic monomyth like the you know the hero's journey as a plotting model is that a it's not joseph campbell and a lot of it's kind of falderall but on top of it it is based in the idea that a character is essentially interchangeable, that one character could be moved into any story. And so it doesn't matter whether you're Harry Potter or you're Frodo or you're um, Katniss Everdeen, you could really be anybody in any novel and just move them around. That's manifestly bullshit. Because if you put Katniss Everdeen in the Harry Potter series, that series would be over in chapter two. She would just kill everybody. By the same token, if you stuck Harry Potter in the Hunger Games, Mofo would be dead. Mofo would be dead instantly. The point is, you cannot move them because their actions are intrinsic to the story. And so this idea that there's this interchangeable, like, now I'm an orphan, now I'm a martyr, now I'm a wanderer, horseshit. Nobody, people are not cookie cutter, interchangeable chess pieces, right? We're not, it's not, um, it's not 
inert blobs like gingerbread people. And so whenever people do that sort of routine, I'm always, I always think to myself like, well, you're going to write a totally forgettable book that no one will read because they're so blank. Even Bella Swan, one of the most neutral characters ever, people invested so deeply because she was always acting. She took action. She was a very passive character, mm. but she was active in her passivity. That also had a bunch of other things going for it, sort of zeitgeisty things going on for it. But those books are active. Whatever else you say about the quality of the writing and the world building and all the rest of it, there is action on every page. And I think that's what drives them. When people say it's not good writing, but it's a good story, what they're talking about is the action. Always. Out of selfish curiosity, what is Katniss's verb? Oh, that's easy. That's hunt. Okay. Hunt. And actually, I'll go a step further. You want to, so I was talking about antonyms, right? We're talking about how antonyms work. So Katniss is absolutely hunt. She hunts in every moment of every scene of that series. She's always hunting. But if you look at the two love interests, right? At Peta and at Gale, I knew on like page 40 who she was going to end up with at the end of the trilogy. And the reason is Gale is consumed. What he does is burn everything around him. He devours everything around him. And what I thought was, oh yeah, it's hot to be with the one who eats you up. But the one you're going to stay with is the one who feeds you. And that, of course, is PETA's action. action the PETA, in every scene, feeds her. And so you look at feed, consume. Feed, hunt, is an opposition. That is an antonymic relationship. Feed, uh, consume, hunt, is an antonymic relationship. Feed, consume antonymic relationship. That's why it's such a perfectly balanced love triangle because each of them has an antonym in the other person. And so there's tons of friction between them, which makes for a really good storytelling, right? It makes for really good. I don't know. Oh. I, that's one of my things that I love. It's one of my things that I love is to take a book that I love and figure out why, like figure out how it works. And so this is a game that Jeffrey and I play all the time. If we read a book or we watch a movie where I was like, okay, what are the actions? It's really fun to do because it's just verbs, right? Which also makes your writing better. Good. Oh yeah. I, I have an obsession for uh, deconstructing books down to a forensic level. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I commit sacrilege and underline things in all of the books that I read. And then I take them all at the end and look at them and look at the patterns and then look at how they've, you know, so one author might be very good at characterization or another author might be exceptional at description. And then I'll go down to the sentence level and look at the patterns and look at how they are um creating the you know so lauren oliver for example is very good at description and so i deconstructed how she she describes mm -hmm. and yeah i just yeah i i, I fully geek at this level too <laughs> but the thing is is i think it it makes us better writers but i think it also makes the genres better i think mm. that the you know the genres aren't static they're always evolving i'm always weirded out when i talk to people and they say oh i don't read i don't i don't read and I think, well, how do you change like yeah. how do you grow because everything is shifting a, a contemporary romance with a navy seal in 2019 is a different book than it would have been in 2009 or 1999 or 1959 those are all different and so the idea that you just sort of you just say like oh she's she works on a ranch she you know she's a ranch hand and any ranch hand at any time no because ranches in the 1960s are different than ranches in the 1980s are different than ranches in 2010 and so like Martha Graham, I always quote this, Martha Graham had, used to have this quote, she said, no artist is ahead of their time, the artist is the time. Mm -hmm. That's what art is. Art is always a snapshot of where you are in space and time, how your 
consciousness interacts, your heart interacts with the world around you. And I think that's why people read is they want our voices kind of giving them a door into a world that they're never going to inhabit because we're not going to get to slay dragons and we all don't get to go to Mordor and throw the ring into Mount Doom. And we don't all get to hunt down people in the Hunger Games, but we can read about it and we can feel it. And that's why, again, I always go back to the actions because what we want is the doing. We want to do stuff. Mm. It's so funny that you say that. I literally heard, um, I was listening to Writing Excuses today, which is another uh, podcast. Do you know Oh, it? I know, Ready? Like, absolutely. I love them. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about how they are all okay with their, um, you know, their early books because they were snapshots in time of mm-hmm. who they were as an artist at that point. Um, so I think that, yeah, I completely agree. And I think, um, I think it's also very, very important to read because... You know, I can, I know just from sticking with my young adult genre that it's now okay to have sex in young Mm -hmm. adult books. It was not okay to have sex in a young adult book, you know, five, ten years ago. Now, I mean, Jesus, you only need to look at Sarah J. Mass. It's basically like teen porn, you know? Um, But the thing is that the, the ecosystem is always shifting and if you don't the thing is if you don't evolve you will die like if you if you dig if you walk in the same path over and over again you're going to dig a grave with your feet and you Mm -hmm. might as well just get in the dirt and pull it over you because your career can never go anywhere oh i completely agree um i it's gone out of my head now but my dad says something um along the those lines of um if you're not moving you're dying or something um okay sentence level uh, any quick tips or tricks uh, to create better characters with these verbs? Um. Yes, absolutely. So on a sentence level, literally just writing craft, the simplest thing in the world. I have a friend who wrote a beautiful YA, uh, it was a YA fantasy, um, bordering on steampunk, like bordering on gaslight fantasy. Beautiful world building, beautiful everything. And I realized, I was like, there's something with this book that just bugged me. And I realized that on every page, is, was, were, has, Everything was a passive verb. Everything was a verb that was a state of being. So at the simplest level, if you go through any page of your manuscript, look for every time you're telling someone either is something, was something, or a group of people were something, or they have something. These are all states of being. They're moods, right? And so the minute you can replace that with them doing something actively, transitively, your story comes to life in a different way. Even if it's a feeling, even if it's something related to the world building or the scene setting or the POV, by activating the language, literally activating the language, you bring your characters to life in a different way because then every sentence is actually characterizing your people. It's actually driving the narrative instead of relying on sort of nouns and adjectives, which are kind of sexy but concrete. Like they're, they just lie there like bricks. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, this is the um, last official question, always my favorite question for obvious reasons given this conversation. But this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I guess I can't even get to the end of that sentence anymore without laughing. I don't, I can't really imagine a time that I wasn't doing that. I mean, every business I've ever been in, but when I came into romance, first off, I'm a man in romance, that's weird. I write gay romance, that's weird. I write gay romance, which does New York Times numbers, that's weird. And so like, I'm this sort of, I'm an anomaly on so many levels. But at the same time, like I have a deep respect for tradition. I love tradition, but I love it because I wanna know how it's gonna blow up and mutate and become 
sort of a zombie death princess. Like I wanted to, I want everything to change and transform. And so for me, I feel like everything, every day, I'm always sort of blowing things up in an ongoing basis. Like my life is nitroglycerin, but specifically, I would say specific, if you ask me for a specific moment, I, <laughs> my first ever um, romance conference I went to, a big romance conference, I should say. I've, I've been to one small one. My first ever big romance conference, I walked in the room and I, it was like 8.30 in the morning and there were 3,000 women eating cheesecake with their hands off of plates in the middle of tables. And I walked in and I, 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 I bent down and I got under the table and I called my husband on my cell phone and I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> Something horrible is going to happen. They're going to kill me. They're going to hurt me. I was like, I'm this weird, sweaty, pale queen. Right? Like, What on earth am I doing here? Get me out. And he was like, why are they being mean? I was like, no, they're all really nice, but I think they want to hurt me. They want to kill me. And the truth was they only wanted to help. And within an hour, I actually, at that event, met some of the people who were my closest allies and colleagues and friends in the industry. And so the thing that I did that day is I decided, rather than treating the sort of professional arena of it as, uh, as um, a neutral landscape, I decided to treat it as a treasure hunt, as if every conversation had something secret buried in it, if I could just crack the pinata. And so for a whole day, I went around and I was just like, okay, what's the candy in this pinata? What's the candy in this pinata? And I went around basically like shocking people and doing weird things and taking my pants off and showing my ass and wearing things on my head. And I mean, I was always doing this crazy shit. And, and what's funny is I did it for this day. And at the end of the day, Jeffrey was like, well, how'd it go? And I said, well, I think some people were shocked and there's some pictures you're going to hate. <laughs> but the truth is, I think I now know what I'm supposed to be doing every day in this genre. I'm supposed to be rattling cages and shocking people and loosening things up and asking impossible questions and saying the weird thing. And so that's what I've done. I mean, that's sort of become my model for writing genre fiction is how do I make people uncomfortable in pleasant ways, right? And so in a way, I feel like my entire life is lighting fires in heaven and pouring waters on hell. I'm always looking for a way to kind of burn down paradise and, and rebuild it as something more beautiful and more weird and more exciting and more inclusive because I think all genre is stronger because people coming together create the world, right? They make up the world. I'm always quoting this book by Lynn Hunt called Inventing Human Rights and her argument, she's a historian, she argues that the reason we have modern democracy, the reason we have a vote, the reason that torture has been outlawed and that dungeoning is no longer used is because of popular romance novels that you can actually track as popular romance novels gained in popularity as they grew, their audience grew, that little by little, a group, the group of literate people, educated, wealthy people reading them said things like, I think my wife might be a person. I think that black man is a human. I think that people have ideas and thoughts. I think that child might actually have a future. And little by little, romance novels taught people how to empathize in much the same way that science taught people to look at the stars and look at the future and look at technology in much the same way that Westerns taught people to look at savage landscapes and think about what law looked like, right? What civilization looked like in the same way that fantasy helps us look at the past and unpack history in ways that maybe aren't literally true, but they're emotionally true, right? And so for me, 
I feel like all of us, just by participating in genre, are rebels. That's the nature of genre. Genre as a, na- as a word means general. It is a category, right? But all we're ever trying to do, we're like birds inside a giant burning cage. We're all in this cage saying, here we are together. How do we tear it apart, <laughs> right? How do we reinvent it? And th- what is more punk than that, right? Amazing. I... I am going to need a very long night out. <laughs> Listen, the next time I'm in London, I'm taking you out. That's date. Amazing, That's amazing. Um, okay, tell listeners where they can find out more about you and your books. Um, all right, so I'm pretty much like mold. You can find me anywhere. Uh, my name is Damon Sway, D-A-M-O-N-S-U-E-D-E. I'm at DamonSwade.com. My Twitter handle is Damon Swade, Facebook, Damon Swade. Literally, if you type in Damon Swade, I come up all over the place. I'm also the income, I'm the president-elect currently of Romance Writers of America, and so my contact information is all over the RWA site. Um, and I'll be president next year. And so again, I'll be, I'm always findable through RWA, but I'm everywhere, man. I'm on Goodreads. I'm on Amazon. I'm on NPR. I'm, I'm always doing stuff. I'm always around and about. So I know that you teach, but do you, have you done like online courses yet around verbalize? I've done a few. Um, I have to tell you, I always prefer in person because I think the, it sounds so wanky, but the energy is different. And Mm. so I could do an online class. Actually, Reedsy, um, Ricardo Fayette had asked me to do a class for Reedsy, which I'm going to. I'm going to do a class about verbalizing for branding, like an intro class. I just haven't had time to finalize it. But I do, I teach. If you go to my website, I have a class page and I travel two to three weeks a month um, I'm on the road. Uh, so I'm always, tra- I mean, on th- like three different continents. So I'm always, like I was just in Bristol. I'll be um, in Miami, I'll be in Ohio. Like I'm always sort of traveling around. So I- I'm probably coming to a city near you um, <laughs> as we speak because I, I'm, I have a little bit of wanderlust and I also just, I love, I'm an extrovert. And so I love interfacing with people and talking shop and I learn more from them than they learn from me. Well, next time you teach in the UK, I, I need to know because Date. I'm coming. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, they're talking about founding an RWA chapter in the UK. They're working oh, on that. They? If you're interested, let me know. I'll send you the info. Yeah. Okay. Fabulous. Right. Well, thank you very much to all of uh, the Rebel Author podcast patrons. Uh, If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus Patreon-only content, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. That is Sasha with a C. Thank you very much to everybody listening. And thank you to the amazing Damon. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for anyone listening. It's been really wonderful to hang out today. Uh, I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Damon Suede. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I will be talking to one of my favourite people in the indie sphere. Mark Lefebvre is an absolute legend as far as I'm concerned. And we will be talking all about how to get your book into libraries and bookstores and how to work with them. Don't forget the question of the week this week is what is your verb? Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.